Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Talking Africa program. Talking Africa provides in-depth interviews with experts and other actors in the field of peace and security in Africa. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. My guest today is Fola Aina, an Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute of Security and Defence Studies in London. Fola, what's happening in Francophone West Africa? We have yet another coup in Niger. What's going on? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Desmond, and it's indeed a pleasure to be here. Uh, so a lot is going on, actually. Uh, what I'll try to do is to summarize as best as I can. Uh, so with Francophone West Africa, what we've had in the past is a situation whereby these countries, beginning with Mali, were yes. um, struggling with um, an insurgency uh, crisis, okay, that began to wreak havoc, you know, yes. Period of these countries, and so given their long-standing relationship with France, who happened to be a former colonial ruler of these countries, uh, there was a natural tendency to lean towards uh, France, you know, yes. to uh, seek support in fighting these insurgencies. So as far back as uh, 2012, when this insurgency started, with, especially beginning with the Tuareg rebels in Mali, there was an invitation to France to uh, try to help, you know, bring the situation under control. Uh, this began yes. Operation Sevan. Eventually, that gravitated into Operation Bahrain. Okay, but unfortunately, these insurgencies, if you like to call it, uh, violent extremist groups, began to spread, you know, across the Sahara region from Mali, again to Burkina Faso and other countries in the region, and basically uh, necessitating the need for the establishment of a G5 Sahel group, which is basically a security um, outfit at also addressing these problems. So bottom line is there's been a problem of insecurity and France was asked to come in to try to support uh, efforts, you know, uh, at um, addressing these problems. But unfortunately, and it's important that I mention this, unfortunately, upon France's role in the region to try to resolve this problem, it adopted a mostly militaristic approach, okay? An approach that emphasized the use of kinetic measures, that is the use of force, of addressing the underlying root causes of these problems. And let me quickly just um, sum them up into four dimensions. So the first is the socioeconomic dimension, who looks at issues around poverty, inequality, unemployment, mass illiteracy, and all of that. And if you know, the Sahel has one of the highest rates you know, of poverty across the world. There's also the second dimension, which has to do with uh, the political dimensions, bordering around issues of weak institutions, poor governance, issues of marginalization. And then third, uh, issues around to some extent, ethno-religious uh, dimensions, and last but not least, uh, issues bordering around environmental degradation. So these are some of the problems that have confronted the region, and this has also gone on into Niger. Okay, So the coupists in Niger basically sought to take advantage of the unfolding situation across the Sahel to say, see, our political leaders haven't been able to solve insecurity. We've left it in your hands for too long to solve insecurity, and you haven't been able to do that. So it's time for us to take over you know, and try to solve insecurity. And that's exactly what the Putschists did in Burkina Faso as well. But you see, that's the point. I mean, it's not the civilian government that should be doing the fight. They've given the soldiers everything to do the fighting and they're not delivering. So why then blame the civilians? Yes, that's a very good point. But then again, we should be quick to remember that uh, the president, even in the democratic uh, dispensation or the yes. administration, is first and foremost the commander-in-chief of the yes. armed forces. Again, you know, openness. Okay. And this is in no way to justify the coupists uh, coming into power. But let's also be reminded that a lot of times um, the military brass feel that they are hindered from carrying out their uh, responsibilities 
optimally. So it's in two areas. The first is through political interferences of uh, democratic leaders. And then the second has to do with the politics around funding, uh, defense procurement, purchasing of the right equipment that they require and all of that. So some of these military rulers who have taken over power are saying, let us have total control of that entire process ourselves. Yes. Let's in the hands of the civilians. Uh, you haven't done so much of a good job rather than just backing out orders for us, let us take charge ourselves and try to now bring this one in. But we've seen that in Burkina Faso, which was a primary reason that was given by the coupists for taking over power was because they wanted to address insecurity. But several months down the line, uh, insecurity in Burkina Faso has worsened. Exactly. Niger has had at least, since the coup started to date, been at least seven attacks in the country by um, Islamic terrorist groups, which has also resulted in the death of a number of um, civilians and also yes. soldiers. So soldiers, yes. The military has taken over power in Niger is not an automatic guarantee that security would improve. If at all anything, I expect security to worsen. And for the sole yes. reason that I mentioned earlier, that the military would have a tendency to pursue insecurity from an overly militaristic lens at the expense of neglecting root causes. So you have a tree that has branches, right? And the military's approach to addressing insecurity will be to simply cut off the branches, okay? But then the next thing you know is that the branches sprout out again. Until you uproot the roots of the tree, that tree would continue to produce branches. So a better approach would be to address these underlying root causes rather than simply just cutting off the branches. That's the point. Of course, there's underlying insecurity in all these countries, not just in the Sahel, but also all over Africa. But the problem is that it was NATO that opened the floodgates for these weapons from Libya to be used by these Islamists and all the way down from Libya to Sahel. If NATO had not gone in all guns blazing to get Gaddafi out without taking into effect the fallout of that, that the weapons will fall into the wrong hands, we would not have had this situation in the first place. So NATO has a part to play in the insecurity in the region. So that's one side of the story. But again, I would be careful not to put the entire blame on NATO. Again, because they're yes. a part to play. And this reality is worsened by the fact that a lot of these countries in the Sahel region have very porous borders, all right? Which has yes. encouraged the proliferation of small arms and light weapons you know, across these countries, which in many ways also aggravates armed conflict on the ground. Okay, But on the other hand, we yes. must remember also that states have a responsibility to also ensure the proper governing of their territorial boundaries. All right? yes. and again, states, irrespective of what has happened in Libya, these states haven't necessarily been able to do this as much as they ought to do. And that in many ways also points to the problem that I alluded to earlier about issues around unprofessionalism, corruption. Some of the immigration officers, for instance, in some of these countries are also very corrupt. They accept bribes, you know, and then they yes. have a lot of weapons to, to come in to these countries. And also some of these, irrespective of the fact that these entry points are also not governed, hence the yes. popular um, term about uh, governed spaces, there's also a need to man them, to close these gaps with, with the lack of manpower. And that's where the place of technology comes in. But again, to use technologies such as unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, to provide surveillance and monitoring of these areas requires resources. And again, yes. these are very poor. They do not have the resources. So going back to the case of NATO, it's yes, on the one hand, NATO might have been, might have played a role in this regard, but also let's forget that they have also demonstrated a willingness to try yes. to um, solve these problems, to assist in solving these problems. The EU is very present 
in the Sahel. We also know that the British are present in the Sahel, the Americans are present in the Sahel, and France is present in the Sahel. So you can see that these are key countries that make up NATO, and in some many ways, they are also being directly involved. But the problem is that they are still uh, addressing the issue from an angle that does not necessarily resolve it, as it were, rather it have the unintended consequence of leading to yes. a protracted war. Because when you keep approaching a problem such as insecurity or violent extremism using force, what happens is that the enemy, or in this case, the violent extremists, simply begin to adapt. And then you see the conflict becoming protracted. When you address the root causes, like I have advocated for, the tendency for these um, conflicts to be sustained through recruitment and through uh, leveraging influence and sympathy on the part of local communities is significantly diminished. Because when people are empowered, okay, when people are educated, there's a yes. lesser tendency for them to be brainwashed or radicalized, as it were. Yes. But fine enough, uh, the reaction one has been getting is that uh, although in West Africa they talk about uh, democracy and whatever, but there's still underlying support for the coup uh, leaders in Niger. Because in northern Nigeria, because of the connection with northern Nigerians and Nigerians, they don't want any military action against the, the military regime in Niger. So these are all contradictions, really, yes. in terms of uh, governance. Absolutely agree with you. To quickly uh, speak the point you mentioned about the connections between Nigeria and Niger, both concerns are very valid because in the event of an, a military intervention, there will be so many consequences. So say the list yes. is over effects, a high cost of goods uh, and services, you know, mass displacements, and the list is endless. But also let's remember that in a democracy, first and foremost, the citizens have a responsibility to hold their leaders accountable. So irrespective of the uh, system of governance, if the political leaders are performing at subpar levels, uh, beyond lower than expectations, then citizens have a right through legitimate means, civic responsibilities, okay, to vote them out of office. Okay, so a lot of time, the political realities in most countries, and this is not just in Africa alone, but across the world, is a reflection of the level of people's engagement in the political process. Because mm -hmm. these outcomes, the results of people coming out to vote for particular leaders, or in some instances, refusing to come out to vote. Hence, yes. the reason why we end up with certain calibers of political leaders across the continent. Yes. I mean, let's face it. Those ECOWAS have the uh, military capability to go into Niger. I mean, the, the point is, I mean, the African standby force should have been in place since 2010. And each of the regional economic community should have had the standby forces. What happened to the uh, ECOWAS standby force? So that's a very valid question. Uh, with regards to the ECOWAS standby force, there's been lots of uh, issues that have um, um, set it back from being fully yes. operational. First and foremost is the, the commitment from member states uh, and the proportion of responsibilities that would come with um, troop contribution. Uh, so I know for the um, Air Force standby force to be fully operational, I know that at the least they will be requiring about 25,000 troops. As you can imagine, for instance... And, and also civil and police. Yes. So Nigeria, for instance, will have to bear the brunt of that number. Yes. Bearing in mind also that Nigeria is also saddled with a significant amount of uh, multiple internal security challenges. Of, yes. Of, all right. Uh, secondly... Uh, there's the issue of the financial aspects, uh, logistics. Yes. Again, Nigeria might have to bear the brunt of these responsibilities, as the case was in Liberia and in Sierra Leone. Uh, two other countries that might also be in a good position to, to make a difference uh, with regards to the standby force would be Ghana, 
and yes. Senegal are also very good leaders uh, who have mm-hmm. demonstrated very good leadership on the continent. But if again, if you watch closely what's happening in the region right now, Ghana is in a serious economic mess. Okay? Yes. Ghana is struggling economically. And in Senegal, on the other hand, uh, there's also a political situation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mass protests in recent times, even leading to forcing uh, President Michael Salif to say he will shelve his top 10 ambitions. So you can see Nigeria, the other two most viable countries that might be able to make a difference would be uh, Ghana and Senegal. And then maybe a third one might be uh, Cote d'Ivoire. But with Cote yes. d'Ivoire, also, Cote d'Ivoire is also struggling with its own challenges, especially regarding the speed over of terrorism. Uh, yes. into the rural, uh, coastal West Africa from the Sahel region. So every country in West Africa has its own challenges. And so that always has set back attaining... Yeah, of- yeah. And that's the point. I mean, these soldiers in Guinea, in Niger, in Mali, in Burkina Faso, they've seen the chaotic nature of governance in West Africa. That's why they're doing what they're doing. And I'm telling them, you can go to hell. I mean, we're not going to handle it apart. Absolutely. It's the poor governance in West Africa that's allowed these soldiers to stand firm. Bottom line, yes. It's a reflection of poor governance, mostly, and the incapacity of um, state institutions to be able to carry out their primary mandates in, amongst other things, in providing security and safety for citizens in these West African countries. Yes. Yeah. What has changed, really, in terms of the military force? Because no matter what you say, the Nigerians did extremely well in stopping the wars in Liberia and Sierra Leone. I mean, it's nothing to do with Britain or whatever. It was the Nigerian forces who did all the work in Sierra Leone, for example. How come then the Nigerians cannot deal with their own internal insurgency like they did in Sierra Leone and Liberia? Well, that's a very valid question. Uh, with regards to the current um, insecurity situation in Nigeria, since I've defied all uh, reasonable explanations for why it has gone on for so long, is we need to remember yes. at the time when Nigeria intervened in Syria alone and in Liberia, it was mostly dealing with rebel groups. When as sophisticated as they are right now uh, with violent extremist groups who are mostly driven by a political ideology on the one hand. Yes. And then on the second hand, let us also remember that at the time when Nigeria intervened in Liberia and Syria alone, Things weren't as uh, also sophisticated as they are now, where you have a proliferation of technology from which some of yes. these groups now leverage on to recruit uh, mass propaganda and misinformation and all of that. And then thirdly, there's the linkages with um, external support from Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Okay, So even when you diminish or you degrade and dismantle some of these terrorist groups, the fact that they have external linkages means that there's always a room for them to be replenished and for them to refuel their numbers and for them to be contributions from foreign terrorist fighters coming to show up their numbers. So the situation is a bit more dynamic, you know, as compared to the time with Sierra Leone and uh, Liberia. And then also, there are also other challenges also with regards to the nature of the war which in yes. many ways, it's become asymmetric. It's a lot of asymmetric warfare. It's very irregular. I know even yes. in Syria alone, it was a bit of, at those times, those groups were still in their very early formative years, you know? So it was still a bit easier and better to manage them compared yes. to now where these conflicts are more um, sophisticated, okay? Because of the fact that there are so many other dynamics that also add to the mix, including, like I mentioned earlier, the uh, environmental degradation challenges that makes the issues comp- all the more complex, the socioeconomic dimensions, the political dimensions, and also in some instances, the religious dimensions as well. But crucially, 
when Nigeria undertook these uh, expeditions in Sierra Leone and Liberia, the country was under military rule. These soldiers were determined to resolve the issue as dictators. Whereas with the civilian government, you have to go through parliament, you have to discuss back and forth, back and forth. Those are the things that uh, I'm sure are holding things up now. And I absolutely agree with that. But that should also be reminded that at the time when Nigeria intervened, Nigeria was seeking external support through the Structural Adjustment Program, the SAP. There were also, at the initial stages of the conflict, there were also some relative advantage for Nigeria in terms of oil prices initially. Yeah, of course. Uh, But when you look at the situation currently, as it is right now, you see the economy is actually struggling. Take, for instance, Nigeria has only come out from two economic recessions within yes. the past eight years. It has experienced mm-hmm. two recessions. Uh, secondly, uh, only just recently, it has put an end to its controversial uh, fuel subsidy regime, which has in many ways had the unintended consequence, you know, yes. of resulting in economic hardship. Uh, so, so the country in itself, in all fairness, is struggling a lot and having to do with these multiple security threats. So you can imagine that resources that would require you know, to pursue some of these interventions as it were, and as forthcoming, you know, as one would expect them to be. Yes, I understand, because I, I think the Nigerian government said that they spent uh, $8 billion in the prosecuting the war in, in Liberia and Sierra Leone. But Nigeria cannot now afford $8 billion, can it? No, no, no. Nigeria cannot afford $8 billion. Let me quickly remember the figures that the current president of ECOWAS said will be required to get at the standby force. If I have my facts correct, he mentioned that, yes. I think, to sustain the standby force annually, would require at least twelve billion. And then in Liberia, that was war that went on for years and resulted in eight billion. And so the immediate intervention today, when Nigeria will have to take the brunt of the responsibility, where does Nigeria get that kind of money from? Who's going to fund the intervention? So these are some of the very crucial issues that need to be addressed. You are listening to Talking Africa on the ALC Pan African Radio. Stay tuned. Welcome back. My guest today is Fola Aina, an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute of Security and Defense Studies in London. Talking about uh, funding again, what is the African Union doing? It has almost $400 million now in its peace fund, and nothing has been spent. I mean, that fund should have been used to stop the war in Somalia and stop the conflict in, in Sudan. And now we have this problem in West Africa. What is wrong with the African Union just sitting on a huge amount of money and not doing anything with it. The African Union for a very long time has been described as a toothless bulldog. It has been very good with uh, making uh, rhetoric and little action. And I think there's a need to try to be very careful not to give other African states the impression that it's, it's taking up the form of um, a new colonial um, entity, given the history yes. of colonialism on the continent. So I think the you know, has always treaded very carefully in this regards. But also, if you realize what has been happening in more recent times, again, going back to Niger, ECOWAS has specifically asked the African Union for support on the position, which it did grant, it granted support, uh, or rather demonstrated support for ECOWAS position. But in more recent times, I think just a day or two ago, the African Union has come out to say, yes, it supports uh, ECOWAS decision, except a military intervention. You see that the AU, and ECOWAS seems to be in two different positions now on Niger. Because like I mentioned, uh, the African Union is trying to save face and doesn't want a situation whereby uh, its decisions in support of military intervention will come back to haunt it, giving the impression that it is simply pursuing a Western agenda. 
you know, on African soil. The, the African Union just doesn't want to spend the 400 million, it wants to use it for something else. That's what cynics say. You know, I mean, we've been sitting on this money for ages. Well, what should be done? Things need to change with the African Union's mentality to peace and security problems in Africa, don't you think? Actually, and again, there are lots of politicking that takes place within the African Union. I mean, you can imagine such a huge bureaucracy would have yes. lots of um, power plays. Yes. Yes. So uh, we might not exactly know the reason why they might be reluctant to pursue a harder stance on countries like Niger. But yes, one can only just imagine whether hesitancy has existed for this long. Also, before we proceed, I would like to quickly correct something. So I mentioned earlier, yes. um, ECOWAS saying that they would require about $12 billion. Actually, the uh, president of ECOWAS, that is um, President Omar Aliou Toure, did this yes. at the UN Security Council just a few weeks ago, you know, that to fund a brigade of 5,000 yes. troops, yes. 2.3 billion US dollars annually. Or deployment of troops on demand. So that you have it yes. on demand, it will cost them about 360 million uh, yes. US dollars. So again, mm-hmm. if you have an intervention in Niger, there's not going to say how long that intervention will last, for instance. Yes. Where the monies will come from. Okay. You know, so these are some of the realities ECOWAS is having to face as it makes plans, you know, to put together a standing force. And you with your own expertise in security issues and that sort of thing, how easy do you think? The force can even go to Niger and, and change. Niger is not the Gambia. The Gambia was bullied in 2017 by ECOWAS. So how easy do you think that will happen in Niger? I think it will be a bit difficult for the primary reason that uh, you've got uh, countries with quite different political orientations, same subcontinent. So you've got Anglophone Africa, you've got Francophone Africa, you know, and all of that. Uh, so to say the least, you can imagine even issues around joint trainings. Have a deployment of such a nature, there would be a need for some joint military exercises yes. to be on the same page. Secondly, there's also the issue of um, communication barriers, you know. Uh, and then again, the issue around understanding the terrain. So Niger is a landlocked uh, country. The nature of the military operations in that country might involve a lot of heavy land warfare because of mm-hmm. the landlocked nature. Uh, whereas in Liberia, as you're alone, you know, the deployment by sea. Yes. So it's all the dynamics you have to really go. Yeah, so the, these are the reality they have to face first. I mean, do you know whether they're thinking about all these uh, problems? They are thinking mm. about them. And as, as we speak today, I know that there's the second meeting with uh, chiefs of defense staff from Ecuador yes. that's going to be taking place today and tomorrow mm. in Ghana. I suspect that amongst other things would be to uh, iron out some of these uh, realities and come yes. up with ways and strategies, you know, that best suits um, the case for a military intervention. Actually, the issue of the proliferation of small arms like weapons in Africa is a major problem. Because the point is, let's face it, no African country, maybe just South Africa, manufactures these weapons. Well, there are millions of them on the continent coming from outside. How can African governments try and put a halt to this trade that is causing death and destruction on the continent? Again, I think... The first thing is to identify the sources of these weapons. So there are basically two sources. One are through the legal means, which come through the forms of defense procurement, which comes from the black markets. Black markets are mostly driven by the porous borders. So again, first and foremost, there needs to be stringent measures that regulate arms inflows into these countries. And this can mostly be done through the immigration services of these countries. Yes. I'm putting very strict and stringent measures again around border governance. There is no other way to solve this problem until concrete steps and concrete actions are taken in regard. And like I mentioned, through leveraging of technology, databases, okay, ensuring that um, weapons 
that are coming into the country can properly tracked, for instance. And also, even in the porous areas, you have 24-hour surveillance drones and other gadgets, you know, that helps to monitor what activities that are coming in and out and ensuring the professionalism of um, immigration officers within these entry points. Okay, and the points where you don't have any form of um, human or manpower in those areas, or human presence, then you must be able to find other measures and other ways to keep an eye on those areas through the use um, of man area variables. But also, African government should talk to the Western governments and other governments outside of Africa, because, I mean, the, the arms dealers are coming from abroad. They are the ones who are selling illegal weapons in Africa, and it seems to see the Western governments are not closing down on them as Africans would like them to do. Again, I think there's only so much that can be done in this regards because you can only do so much when it comes to determining or controlling how weapons have been smuggled out of a country and ending up in the hands of um, those who are going to use them for whatever evil uh, purposes. I think what needs to be done more, again, is to focus better attention on addressing the underlying root causes of yes. armed conflict, which goes back to those four things I mentioned again around the socioeconomic issues, poverty, and all that. When you address these issues, then the market for illegal weapons will be significantly reduced. But yes. those who ship these weapons into African countries have found Africa to be a viable market because of these socioeconomic realities on the ground, high poverty, literacy, all these things that trigger you know, that drive armed conflict. So I think what African countries, um, governments can do is focus on what they can control, which is addressing those root causes rather than what they cannot control, which is how these weapons are smuggled out of these other countries and end up in their own countries. So one, put better efforts at addressing border issues in yes. their own countries, so addressing the underlying socioeconomic root causes that gives way for armed conflict in first instance to thrive. But sure. I know the structure of African societies. It's so stratified, you know, in terms of race or ethnicity. And that's the main problem, really. African countries themselves are not united as nation states. You know, there are disparate ethnic groups pulling the nation state apart. So, I mean, you can't just blame the politicians. Even these people support the politicians who tend to pull the nation state apart. How do you overcome this problem? So as it is with every society, you know, there will always be people, there will always be issues around divergent interests or various groups then to give expression to their own interests. Sometimes these uh, interests or differences might even be irreconcilable, which is what mm. a lot of conflicts that we're seeing, especially at mm. community levels. But I think something that can be done is uh, something I've always advocated for is to give more room for local non-state actors, like traditional rulers or yes. organizations or imams, uh, pastors, to play a more prominent role, especially at the local level, uh, resource of these conflict uh, resolution mechanisms, also through uh, conflict management. So in other words, while they may not necessarily have a constitutionally recognized role, uh, it's important that political leaders recognize them and make efforts, whether it's through the constitutional recognition or through more deliberate efforts. I recognize yes. the very important role these non-state actors 
play in helping to resolve these conflicts. I think these are some of the ways in which some of these things can be managed, especially at those kinds of uh, grassroots levels. But believe it or not, uh, these are things that are bound to happen, especially in countries or as multi-diverse as ours, uh, whether it's in Nigeria or in places like uh, uh, Africa. Uh, but these are realities we have come to live with, which we focused more on now. I would say trying to change that would be like trying to change yes. our identity as Africans. What we should yes. focus on is managing these differences. So, I mean, in the immediate future, how do you see politics in the continent? Are we expecting more coups or, I mean, we'll just model along? Yes, so it's interesting that uh, in April uh, this year, I was at a conference and I mentioned yes. at the conference that uh, we would be having more coups in West Africa. And then that was in April and then by July, we already had one in Niger. Again, because I know we're on the record, I would only say again, that we yes. should expect more coups, but I wouldn't be mentioning which countries. Politicians need to change their own ways too. Absolutely. And the reason why I'm simply saying this, uh, that we should be expecting more coups, is because, again, the indicators or the telltale signs that have led to yes. these, these coups we've seen in these other places yes. are becoming even more entrenched. Like in, in Guinea. Yes. The continent. So, again, yes. like rightly said, we can probably expect more coups. And so these issues are squarely addressed. Fola Aina, an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute of Security and Defence Studies in London. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Talking Africa and ALC Pan-African Radio. For these and other programmes, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Centre. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.